Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we ask for your grace and your mercy today as we dive into uh, your word, which is preserved by the power of the Holy Spirit, inerrant in all that it is um, for our good, that we might better know you, and in so knowing you, know ourselves, and how to apply the wisdom of your gospel um, to our lives at a daily level. We ask for humility today. We ask for mercy today. We ask ultimately for Jesus to be beautiful today. We pray this in your name. Amen. So I wonder how many of us are aware that the Bible has passages just like the chapter that was read for us this morning. Did you know that God's word includes words seemingly as dark, hopeless, as empty as Psalm 88? What's interesting about this passage is not only that it's part of God's inerrant and inspired word for our good, but did you notice the role it has? If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you today to actually, if you have a physical copy, go ahead and open it up to Psalm 88. If you've got a phone with an app on it, to open it up there as well. But this is the prescript. And so these are the little words in your Bible um, that some of the Psalms have. And this is part of God's inerrant word. This is there in the Hebrew manuscripts. And it says this, a song, a Psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Lenoth, Amaskil, of Heman, the Ezraite. So what we just read was not only a passage of scripture, but it was a corporate worship song known by God's people. Someone sat down and they wrote this song and they composed music to it and they gave it to the choir master to be sung by God's people. It's called Amaskil. And we see other Maskils, Hebrew musical term, throughout the Psalms, and one of them we see in Psalm 45, verse 1. And maybe when you think about corporate singing, this is more what springs to your mind. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verse to the king. My tongue is like a pen of a ready scribe. This Psalm seems more fitting for what we would associate gathering together as the Lord's church and singing, but consider some other mass skills included in God's word. Psalm 55 says this, my heart is in anguish within me. The terrors of death have fallen upon me. Fear and trembling come upon me. Horror overwhelms me. Psalm 142, also a masculine. In the place where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. So saying the Lord's people. I want to read again of our passage today, Psalm 88, verses three through the first part of nine. This is sung, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draw nears to Sheol. That's the Hebrew word for the grave. I am counted among those who go down to the pits. I am a man who has no strength, like one sent loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. 
You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. So here we are after four weeks in our series of talking to yourself. We've looked at talking to ourselves when we feel weak, when we feel anxious. Last week when we feel angry, and this week when we feel depressed. Next week we have a guest preacher. The following week we'll be back in the Gospel of Luke, continuing our study there. But today we're talking about what it means to talk to yourself, to preach the gospel to yourself when we encounter depression, sorrow, and distress. Living life at a baseline means that all of us to some degree experience aspects of sorrow and depression. When Adam and Eve sinned, it was not a step towards progress and ease Sorrow, death, and brokenness became part of our reality. We have moments where we are reminded of the pain of sin, the tension between one another and our separation from God. We are reminded the moment we stub our toe that this world is not okay. And a right response to that is often sadness, sorrow, It is a weighty thing to realize the state of the world we live in. But one thing that's common for most people who experience depression or sorrow, whether it's casually or whether it's chronically, is that seemingly hand-in-hand with that experience goes a crushing experience of aloneness. Perhaps you've been there, in the pit of despair, and it seems no one cares, no one listens and no one wants to move towards you. This is the exact experience of the psalmist in Psalm 88. If you have it open in your Bibles, look at his themes as he walks through this. The experience of the psalmist is that the Lord himself has turned away. His acquaintances are the dead. Displeasure lay heavy upon him. His companions shun him and are ashamed to be with him. He feels that he is only a burden of death, even to those closest to him, and that darkness itself, intangible and consuming, appears to be his only friend. And this psalm, Psalm 88, is incredibly unique as it's one of the only psalms in all of scripture that gets real, real dark and doesn't seem to come back up for air. That there's no, but I will hope in the Lord and he will again save me. But this is why this psalm is so helpful for us today as we consider how to deal with our own depression, sorrow, and sadness, and how to care for those around us who are also wrestling in those seasons. Because while the words of the psalm, which were just read for you, might not resonate with explicit teachings of hope, It is the posture of this psalm that is the silent hope and proper response each of us need to either receive the care of the Lord or to give the care of the Lord. And I want you to see the posture of this psalm because in the midst of fear and frustration and aloneness and places dark and deep, when he feels the Lord himself is afflicting him in the trials of despair, what does this author repeatedly model for us? Look at verses one and two. O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Look at the first part of verse 9. 
or second part of verse nine, excuse me. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Skip down to verse 13. But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. For many who wrestle with depression, or for anyone who lives in a world that seeks to constantly speak to those who are sorrowful and indistressed, you may believe the lie that the Lord has nothing for you. That God does not care that the world has the advice you need, that you ought to seek it there and there exclusively. But in the midst of this darkness, in the midst of this pain, there is a model of going to the Lord, of crying directionally to him. How many of us believe that the Christian experience is only for those who are healthy, those who are satisfied, and those whose life is going well? Perhaps our songs in the church don't sound like this song because we worry it might make us uncomfortable. But guess what? This world makes us uncomfortable. This world weighs heavy against our souls. But here we see that this God desires you to bring it to him, to cry out to him. He has preserved for all time by his Holy Spirit this psalm, which is not a model of disobedience, but actually a model of what obedience looks like in the midst of life's hardships. It holds out to us the promise of hope when it seems all hope is lost. Today, as we conclude this series, my goal is the silent hope of this psalm. It is the goal of this song And that is to show all who wrestle with depression and sorrow and sadness, either chronically or casually, that you are not alone. That the Lord of the Bible cares for you. You see, there has been throughout church history men and women who love Jesus and who wrestle with depression, either casually or chronically. From David in the Psalms, a man after God's own heart who penned many despairing psalms to Paul, who in 2 Corinthians despaired life itself, to figures in church history like Charles Spurgeon, the prince of of preachers, who wrestled with a depression so severe that he described it as a bottomless pit where souls can bleed in 10,000 ways and die over and over again each hour. That's a description that often those who only know that experience can communicate. You have elders and members here at this church who either through catastrophic circumstances or disposition and illness wrestle with deep sorrow. But what we see is that God's word shows concern for your experience. The history of God's church shows a concern for your experience. But more than that, consider your Savior, Jesus Christ, who bends his knee to care for you in your experience. Isaiah 53, verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Jesus, the eternal second person of the Trinity in the flesh, cares for the experience of those who are distressed, despairing, and sorrowful because Jesus himself knew what it was like to feel the weight of this broken world. He knew the crushing weight of aloneness because he was coming to be alone, to deal with our aloneness, to feel our sorrow, to deal with our sorrow. And this God speaks to us in our need for our good so that we might orient our minds and find the strength to obey him even if your obedience in the moment looks like Psalm 88. What I want you to hear is this psalm to go home and pray this psalm, to sing this psalm as a church, is to stand in the safe ground of obedience, knowing that God cares. And what we're gonna see today is this. All depression is at its heart a temporary experience of an eternal reality resolved in the gospel of Jesus. All depression is a temporary experience of an eternal reality resolved in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And with Psalm 88 as our home base, we're also gonna look through the lens of scripture and see three things that are helpful for us to either suffer well or to help those who are suffering. First, we're gonna see biblical causes for depression and sorrow. Then we're going to look beneath the causes to biblical realities behind depression and sorrow. And then lastly, we're going to examine biblical responses to depression and sorrow. But I wanna begin first by speaking to the multifaceted issue of depression in the same way we did with anxiety. And as we'll see in the cause portion, there are all sorts of reasons someone might be depressed, some or depressed, some being casual and normal, others being extreme, severe, physiological. But as we've seen through this whole series, we are not body or soul. We are body and soul. That's how the Lord made us. There's a small season of time where those who die before the Lord comes back, that our body's in a grave and our soul is present before God. But God's original design in the Garden of Eden, God's original design, what will be in the new heavens and the new earth, is that we are body and soul. And what that means is that our sickness in the flesh affects the faithfulness of our spirits and vice versa. That we view the person comprehensively. Timothy Rogers, writing in the 18th century, was a Puritan pastor who he himself was severely afflicted by depression in a biological way. Twice he was forced out of ministry with his depression. And he says this, captures this body and soul care so well, I wanna quote it at length for a moment. So if you would, it's on the screens. The English is a little old, but if we can know what many of the things texted to us these days mean, I'm sure we could figure this out as well. If a man troubled in conscience comes to a minister... It may be that the minister will look entirely to the soul and nothing to the body. If he comes to a physician, he considers the body and neglects the soul. For my part, I would never have the physician's counsel despised, nor the labor of the minister neglected, because body or because soul and body dwell together. It's convenient that, as the soul should be cured by the word, prayer, fasting, or by comforting, so the body must be brought into some temper by medicine diet, and by harmless diversion in similar ways, providing always that it's done in the fear of God so as not to think to quite smother or evade our troubles by these ordinary means, but to use them as preparatives by which our souls may be made more capable 
of the spiritual methods that are to follow afterwards. So what's the big helpful point of this man's pastoral advice and experience? It's that it is no shame and it is part of the human experience to subject our bodies to our own human physicians to the end that it helps us obey the ultimate good physician. Roger speaks of medical care, diet, exercise, medicine as a preparative. What does he mean by that when he says a preparative to the spiritual methods that follow? Just as a, spir- as a surgically repaired ACL does not make a woman a distance runner, the surgery is a helpful preparative for her to grow in her fitness to that end. So too, medicine, when needful, is helpful to prepare us to run the race of obedience. There are times where medical intervention is needed to provide the space we need to pick up anew the race of following Jesus. Is it always needed? No. Is it sometimes needed? Yes. And as one of your pastors, all of your pastors here, all of your elders would love to help those who are wrestling with ought I to pursue this or ought I to figure out different ways? So please talk to us about that. So with that preface, I want to talk about why we might feel depression, why we might experience it. And sometimes it's in our disposition, sometimes it's a sickness, and sometimes there's a bunch of other ways. And this is going to be our first point today, is to examine the biblical causes for depression and sorrow. A couple weeks ago, I delineated anxiety from depression. The two are often hand in hand, tongue in groove. And kind of the delineation point we see in scripture, and I think many of us can affirm who wrestle with these things, is that anxiety bubbles up with an anxious energy. Depression pulls down with a crushing despair. And if we look at scripture, there's more than 10, but I've summarized kind of 10 categories in which the Bible makes room and says, this might cause you to feel that crushing, sinking sand effect in your lives. And this is really important for us to identify because when we are able to identify the cause of our depression or despair, it helps us locate ourselves. It helps us find, kind of like a GPS beacon, it says where you are and gives you the clarity you might need to begin to make your way back to safety or back to where you feel you ought to be. But it also helps those who are suffering and those who are trying to help sufferers to understand that the gospel provides multifaceted solutions to multifaceted sorrows. There are many causes to our sorrow, our anxiety, and our depression. But guess what? The gospel's big enough for all of them. And this helps us from being bad soul care people of applying the simple solution to everything. If all we did was throw Tylenol at a sick person, it might help a select category, but what if their sickness is different? What if their need is different? When we're able to identify the specific causes, we're able to take the wonderfully diverse solutions of the gospel and bring that into the current situation we're in. Now, many of you, knowing how long-winded I often am, are terrified that the first point has 10 points in it. My hope is to at least bring you an experience of depression in the midst of this. Um, But I have at the info desk, if you're a note taker, there's a sheet with all of these on it. Grab it back there. Don't try to to do it. Just listen if that's easier right now. And I'm going to progress through these fairly quickly. And so first, again, these are just places where we locate our experience. The first cause the Bible gives for sorrow and depression in the world is real world sorrows. Real world sorrows. Consider with me Jesus' own experience when his friend Lazarus died in John 11. 
Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. What do we see here? Jesus weeping out of sorrow and distress. Why? Because death is sad. Because this world hurts. As we continue our study in the book of Luke, Luke tells us twice on the night Jesus was going to be arrested that he was sorrowful and troubled. And I use Jesus, the perfect sinless son of God in the flesh, as an example here, to show that it is no sin in some circumstances to be sad, to lose your job, to break up with your boyfriend, to bury a loved one is a sorrowful experience because sin has brought death and pain into our world. This means that sometimes when we approach somebody who is sorrowful and we look at what makes them sad and we say, oh, don't be sad, that's to actually chastise Jesus himself. That's to rebuke Jesus's own response to real sadness and sorrow in the world. You see, it's actually on account of the brokenness of this world that Jesus came. Jesus didn't come to the world. God is perfectly sufficient in trying perfection for all eternity. He did not pursue a redemptive plan to make up for anything lacking in himself. He pursued his plan of redemption because we have a problem. Because this world is dangerous for us. And so often we need to be careful as those who are caring for sufferers that sometimes to belittle the real sorrow in the world is actually to belittle the cross itself. Because it's on account of that that Jesus came to save us. This Bible makes room for reasonable experiences of sorrow and depression. A second cause for depression and sorrow is afflictions in the flesh. And what do I mean when I say that? I mean that our bodies, our, our flesh, our persons, apart from any weakness or will or ongoing sin in our life, may be prone to distress, may be prone to feel more despair than others. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, describing his experience. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that that it should leave me, but he, that is the Lord, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so we aren't sure what this thorn in Paul's flesh was. Was it a bad relationship with somebody, a broken relationship? Was it a physical illness? We're not sure. But what we do know is that God gave it to him. He gave it to him not because Paul was sinful, not because Paul had a weak will, but because wanted, or God wanted Paul to wrestle well with it for his own good. And this is often, out of all the things we look at, this cause of afflictions in the flesh pricks our pride the most. Because it reminds us that we are not God. But that God sometimes gives us bodies and circumstances over which we have no control at all. And in the midst of those, you might pursue medical help and counsel and assistance and prayer, just as Paul did in the midst of it. But for no fault of those reasons, 
The only way that affliction, that disposition might be removed is when God in his kind providence removes it. But in the midst of it, what we see here is that God promises strength even for those who have affliction in the flesh. Third, we see the sorrow of relational isolation. Relational isolation. Psalm 102, six through seven. I am like a desert owl of the wilderness, an owl of the waste places. I lie awake. I am like a lonely sparrow on the housetop. There are times where we are in isolation from other people. And sometimes we respond that way. Because as Daniel talked about last week, in our anger, we withdraw. In our sorrow, we withdraw. But sometimes it's beyond our control and people withdraw from us. And because God made us for community, that withdrawing effect can slowly morph into sorrow and depression. David Brainerd was a missionary in the 18th century to Native Americans and his depression, his affliction in the flesh was compounded all the more by the relational isolation he experienced when living alone in the New England wilderness. And I would encourage you to go read Jonathan Edwards wrote a biography of David Brainerd and see how he wrestled with this relational isolation in light of his fear of God. A fourth cause is physical opposition. Look at what David says in Psalm 43:2. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Whether it was David at the hands of Saul or at the hands of his own children or John Bunyan imprisoned in England for preaching the gospel or John Perkins arrested for being a black pastor in the South, enemies, fears, and threats will cause us to find and seek safety in deep, dark places, even though we know it comes at a great cost. Sometimes if we have sinfully provoked and made enemies or if sometimes the enemies are the sinful ones and they rear up against us, we retreat into the safety of the dark place. But at the same time, it is thinking that withdraw saves us that we begin to have compounding oppression or depression on behalf of the enemies that exist apart from us. And so these first few causes kind of primarily focus on external factors, but the following deal primarily with internal factors. Fifth, we see the sorrow of conscious unbelief. Conscious unbelief, those who do not believe the gospel. We looked at this last week in Isaiah 8, or two weeks ago, in Isaiah 8. To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, that is according to the testimony, the gospel of God, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. So this was the experience of Augustine, an early church pastor, where despite his privilege and success, joy seemed to evade him at every turn because his heart was blinded to God's word. And there's a category of people of which all of us were one at some point in our sins where we look up at God only to validate that we don't believe in him because we're frustrated that life is difficult. We don't like our life, therefore there cannot be a God. But the irony is, is that we look back to the world, we look up in frustration, but we look back into darkness and distress, hoping to find hope, only to be met with darkness and despair. Trying to navigate life in this world alone removes any promise of hope and compounds our despair. Sixth, the biblical cause for sorrow is conviction of sin. 
Consider the man's experience in Luke 18, as told by Jesus, Luke 18, 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here's a man who is in distress. It's not because there's something specific. He's not there. He's saying, I lied to my wife this morning, therefore I'm distressed. He has a general sense of despair because he knows he's sinful. He knows there's something wrong in his heart that not only is the world not as it should be, but he is not as he should be. You see, for many of us, the road to Jesus begins with a creeping despair that something is wrong inside of us. And we will have no idea what to do with that and it will grow into despair unless the gospel of Jesus breaks through. In church history, Martin Luther lived in this despair for a long period of time until the light of the gospel finally showed him what to do with his sin, that righteousness was in faith alone, not his own works. Just like how our stomach reminds you of foul food, oftentimes our hearts remind us of the foulness of our own standing, that we are unholy and apart from a holy God. Seventh, we see functional unbelief as a cause of depression and sorrow. And I say functional because these are people who claim to believe the gospel, but function as if they don't actually believe it. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so if you'll notice, Paul doesn't say, Again, the number one thing you don't say to an anxious person is don't be anxious. The number one thing you don't say to an angry person is don't be angry. The number one thing you don't say to a depressed person is don't be depressed. He doesn't say don't grieve. He says don't grieve as those who have no hope. In other words, many of us claim to have faith in the gospel, but functionally we fail to believe all that is true in regards to the gospel. And this compounds fear. The physician turned pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, described this cause in this way. He said this. He said, it's a terrible thing when a man reaches that point when he knows that he must die. And the gospel which he has argued about and reasoned about and even defended does not seem to help him because it has never gripped him. It was just an intellectual hobby. The gospel as an intellectual hobby and not true faith will lead us to increasing despair in the face of life's hardships as we pick and choose which palatable hope we will believe and which we will not. Claiming the hope of the gospel while simultaneously disbelieving the hope of the gospel leads into an infinite loop of fear and aloneness. Eighth, we see the sorrow of sinful desires. The sorrow of sinful desires. Paul, speaking about his own heart, says this in Romans 7, 22 through 24. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that's my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is describing the the tension in his life of wanting to please God, but having a body that doesn't want to please God. 
How many times are we despairing, not because we explicitly looked at porn last week, but because after years of trying to resist that, we still struggle with lust? How many times, not because we yelled at our kids or at our coworkers, are we despairing, but because we are so quick to anger still, despite knowing it does not produce the righteousness of God. We will experience times in our lives where our spirit is slowly becoming sanctified at the pace God has ordained. But as we look at the tension of sin in our lives, we still feel the weight of sorrow. And with Paul, we scream, wretched man, who will deliver us from this body of death? As we'll see later, Paul's answer is, but thanks be to God who delivers us in Jesus Christ. Ninth, we we learn the sorrow not only of sinful desires, but of sinful actions. Look at what happened with Judas after he betrayed his Lord. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself having committed sin, and this is what I want you guys to see here. It looks like Judas repented, but who did he repent to? He did not run to Jesus. He ran to men. And what do they say? What's it to us? When we sin, when we have acted foolishly, the burden of guilt lay on our heart. But if you run to Jesus, his answer will never be, What is it to me? He will remove the burden of guilt and affix it to the cross with his person and promise you something better. And this is what leads us to the final cause of depression and despair, and that is eternal damnation. Consider Jesus' own warning in Matthew 25. We're gonna look at verse 41, and then we're skip down to verse 45 and 46. Then he will say to those on his left, and so he is, is the, the, the son of man. So Jesus is talking about himself at judgment day. He will say, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devils and his angels. Verse 45 and 46, he repeats it again. Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So I want to make this clear here. You're all in church on a Sunday morning on a beautiful fall morning of homecoming weekend to consider faith in Jesus Christ, to not repent of your sin and give your life to him, to refuse to believe, to refuse to repent is not to make a bad decision. It's not to miss out on life. It's not simply to be wrong. It is to stand to die justly condemned in your sins. Sins in which each of us has walked and to face the justice of eternal punishment forever. Jesus speaks of this in Luke 16, which we will see later on in our series in Luke. 
used as a parable, a story, Luke 16, 22 through 26. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side, this metaphor for heaven. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, that is hell. Being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he, that's the rich man in heaven, called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus, Lazarus is the poor man here, not Lazarus who Jesus raised from the dead. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things and Lazarus in a manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Do you realize that to trifle with the gospel is to not mess around with competing worldviews, plans for your weekend mornings, or debates about the competing good? Instead, each and every one of us must understand that the wages of our unrepentant sin and unbelief is death and has deserved eternal punishment. We do not need Jesus for any other reason than the fact that we need to be delivered from the fear and reality of eternal punishment. And here is the experience of the rich man. Do you see what awaits you? Do you see how he described this? Forever you will thirst without any water. Forever you will hunger without any food. Forever you will suffer without any end. And once you have suffered for a million lifetimes, eternity still awaits. But the heart of this experience, the reality behind the flames and the pangs behind the hunger is the decree of Jesus to those who came to him in false pretense in Matthew 25, where Jesus, our Savior, says, depart from me. Hell is a place of present pain eternally because hell is the place where the Lord will have always turned his face from. It is a place forever apart from our Savior. And this is our second point this morning. This is the biblical realities behind our depression and our suffering. Every experience of depression, I want you to hear this, every experience of depression we experience here on earth, pick anyone off that list. Everyone is simply a foretaste of a true reality that will be endlessly your experience if you stand apart from God in your sins. Our fear of crushing darkness, 
our fear of endless pits of despair, our fear of isolation and displeasure, our safety mechanisms that God graciously gives us in our life to cause each of you to fear the wages of sin and eternal punishment that awaits anyone apart from Jesus Christ. Truly, Behind every experience of sorrow in this world is a reminder of the reality that would be yours eternally were you to be isolated from God apart from Jesus without faith. Which is why passages like Psalm 88 are so incredibly helpful for us because it seems in God's kind providence in this wicked world that it is those who feel the weight of despair who have the clearest realization of eternal realities. Look again. Consider the closing portion of Psalm 88 and notice the fear that is behind the psalmist's words. But I, O Lord cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. So what is the psalmist's greatest fear? Behind all of the circumstantial issues, of food not satisfying him, of friends not loving him, of darkness not comforting him. What is his greatest fear? That the Lord would cast him away forever. That God would never resolve the lesser circumstances in his life by resolving the greatest circumstance of condescending to the sinner, of sitting with the sufferer. We face the shadows of sorrow at every corner of this planet so that we might be mindful of the substance of sorrow that hangs over each and every one of our heads that is eternal isolation from God himself. But this is where this psalm is beautiful. Though it includes no resolution in word, its inclusion in God's perfect word is its resolution. The mere existence of this song sung by God's corporate people reminds the singers of Israel and us today that God will not forsake the one who cries to him. That even in the face of the world's darkest sorrows and places dark and deep to cry out to God is to cry out to the one who will answer who will not always stay silent, whose face will not always be turned away, but the one, because he is the covenant-keeping God of Scripture, will always, in his perfect timing, answer those who cry to him. You see, one day, those who cry out will be too late. For the rich man, it was too late. For the man in Matthew 25... It was too late. But today, the state of your heart, those who sit in despair of their soul, those tempted by the riches of the world, today is not that day. Today is the day to cry out to the God who cares. 
to cry out knowing he will hear you, knowing in his providence he will answer you. So where do you cry when it seems the waves of despair from your youth are crashing over you and not ending? Where do you cry? Consider Jesus' own words, his dying words. In Mark 15, verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? Who knows places dark and deep? Who knows grief and sorrow? Who knows the rejection of the Father? Jesus, your Christ. And Jesus faced this, so that all who have faith in him might experience, even in the moment, the seeming removal of God's face, but knowing full well, because Jesus was afflicted and forsaken, the Lord's saints will not ever be that this will not be your eternal reality. Though you might join David, Jesus, Paul, Peter, Charles Spurgeon, David Brainerd, Augustine, and you might say, why have you hid your face from me? But that will not be your final and only cry. Look again at the wonderful hope of our suffering Savior in Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely he, that is Jesus, has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, that is, the suffering Savior, the iniquity of us all. Jesus has come to bear your grief and your sorrow. He has come to bear the burden that lay behind every burden. And if we repent of our sin, if we take Jesus's, fate, or Jesus's perfect life in our place, then we are brought from darkness to light, from sorrow to peace, from displeasure of God into the promise of his peace. Jesus was isolated so that the promise of God's presence might be the daily hope of the believer. The only comfort we have in the midst of our depression is the promise that God will not always be far from us, but also the hope that even though God was far from Jesus, his perfect son, that momentary sorrow will be swallowed up by eternal fellowship. 
that one day what's broken will be put back in place. It might be in a moment. It might be in three days after darkness in the grave. It might be in a week. It might be in eternity yet to come, but we know it will come. If we reconcile ourselves first and foremost with Jesus, we begin to work our way back through that list and see how salvation from eternal damnation delivers us from everything else, at least in thought. We can begin to say, if God has removed eternal damnation, then there's forgiveness for those who sin. If God has promised new life, there's hope that one day we will no longer wrestle with desires in our heart, but because we will no longer see in part, but we will see in full, for we will, shall see him face to face. If God has saved us in Jesus, then our weak faith through the power of the Holy Spirit will grow us. If God has promised the judgment for the wicked, then all who afflict and harm the Lord's people apart from repentance in the gospel will be locked away forever, left to harm no one again. If Jesus rose from the dead, then those who have afflictions in the flesh, those who feel the weight of brokenness in the world, have the promise of bodies perfected and creation restored. If Jesus has delivered us from the greatest experience of sorrow and depression, we find a little bit of clarity. A small sandbar amidst the trials of life that we can stand on and begin to assess our responses. Working our way back through that list in light of our understanding of the gospel is a helpful way to just open up that oxygen valve on our heart just a little bit. To just get that little bit of space to say, the gospel makes room for this. Jesus has died for this. The promise of eternity is for this. But just as we talked about with anxiety, believing right hope now does not mean we don't suffer in the flesh still. Feeling the depression and the limitations of our depression might not go away. Change might take longer than we want it to. But here's where we can begin in closing to talk to ourselves in ways that are more helpful. This is our final response in closing this morning or final point, biblical responses to depression and sorrow. We've looked at the causes, we've looked at the reality, and so what do we do if knowing the biblical cause and knowing the reality of eternity being removed, we still wrestle or still love those who wrestle with sorrow and depression? We're gonna do two things. First, we speak back to our soul, and we look back at God's faithfulness. Speak back and look back. Timothy Rogers, the Puritan pastor I mentioned, said that people often gave him the advice in his depression, well, just don't think about that. And he said to them, if I didn't think about it, then I'd be cured. That's the problem. I'm thinking about it. So he said what's most helpful is not the command to just not think about it, but instead the biblical weight of trying to think about something else, to reframe our thoughts. And we see this pattern in Psalm 43, where we read this. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see what's going on here? As this comes after Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 are really connected in it. There's despair, there's darkness, there's sorrow. In the midst of his heart, if you've ever been depressed, you know that your heart speaks louder than anything else. Everything's terrible, everything's wrong. You're a failure. Why don't you just stay in this hole forever and die? And what does this psalmist do? He says, hold on, soul. You've talked long enough. It's my turn now. I get asked the questions. You, dear self, why are you downcast? 
Why are you in turmoil within me? And we begin to question our experience. And maybe that start is to, for those who are in that to, to work back through that list. Why am I in turmoil? Is it one of these things? And in that, we might find a solution or at least a hope. But sometimes you might not be able to do that. Depression often just clings to us as our skin does. But this is where we don't only speak back to ourselves, but we begin to look back in our history and see God's faithfulness everywhere. We celebrate baptisms here, and it's a beautiful, wonderful thing, but what if in the midst of you feeling that that God has left you, you say, do you remember your baptism? Do you remember that day where you professed faith and identity in Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection, and a crowd of your fellow believers said, yes and amen. Do you remember that God was for you then? Do you remember that one moment, that morning reading your God's word, and he met you there? Do you remember God's faithfulness? Do you remember his nearness? That God has not changed. We have changed, our circumstances might have changed, but if we cling to Christ, then the favor of God is still there despite whatever the veil of experience might be. You see, when we are depressed, we weary ourselves with distraction, we weary ourselves with advice from friends and consults with medical doctors, but dear Christian, would you weary yourself to the cross? Would you cling to it, reminding that Jesus was faithful to you once and he will be faithful to you again? If you're one who suffers from depression, consider keeping a journal. On days where darkness seems to fade, write it down. So you might return and remind yourself that even in this broken world, the veil and weight of depression did not always exist. And know that full well, it will go away forever in eternity. I love how Psalm 43 ends preaching hope. It says, hope in God. For I'll again praise you, my salvation and my God. He has confidence that one day he will praise again. Look at Paul's similar resolution in 2 Corinthians 1, where he says this, verses 9 and 10. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Confidence, confidence, and confidence is what Paul had. But did you notice what his relief was? On a God who raises the dead. Dear church, see the hope laid up for you in this verse. As Christians, our comfort is not in a God who spares the living, but in a God who raises the dead. Even if our despair takes us to the grave, even if we die feeling in regions dark and deep, if our faith is in Christ, God raises the dead. Do not forget that the final experience of your Lord was rejection, but behind the reality of rejection was the truer reality that he was the perfect spotless son of God. And if we stand in him, then behind our experience of God's rejection is the reality that God is pleased with you. To wrestle faithfully, to wrestle faithfully looking like Psalm 88 is to know that there is hope held out, a place in resurrected glory where things are finally made right. And this is the last response. We speak back, we look back, and finally we look and move forward to God's faithfulness. 
we march hand in hand in obedience. On one day, on account of Jesus' blood in your place, all the feelings of despair, all the false accusations of your sinful heart, all the experiences which seek to undermine your hope in the gospel will go away. Though you may feel alone now, you preach to yourself the gospel hope that you will not be alone forever. God's face will shine upon you with the freshness of mercy and your skin will feel in full warmth what it fears losing on earth below. Jesus' blood, his grief, and his companionship has bought this for you. William Cowper, another saint of old, came to faith in an insane asylum where he was suffering with a bout of depression. For decades, even after his conversion, he wrestled with the severity of his disease, surviving multiple suicide attempts, supported by his faith in the gospel and by his friend, the author of Amazing Grace, John Newton, writing letters weekly to William Cowper. Cowper spent the waning years of his life writing hymns to distract himself from what he called at that point his fatal dream, a despair that grew so intense that he couldn't shake it. And what does it look like to look forward and move forward? It's to remind ourselves of the words which which comforted Cowper. In one of his hymns, one that we'll sing in a moment, he says, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power. To all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Ere since by faith I saw the stream thy flowing wounds provide. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When we fear darkness is our only friend, we remember that in Christ we have a friend closer than a brother, one who has removed the burden of damnation and promised from the well of his blood a life of intimacy and nearness. You are not alone. And all who dwell from the well of Christ know that you will not be alone. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your kindness to us. As we come to you, wearied souls, give us the confidence and the endurance to cling to Christ For those in here, Lord, who have never done so, may they utter their cry to you. Their cries of despair answered in the cross of Christ. Lord, be with us this morning. Give us the grace that reorients our souls and produces worship. We pray this in your name. Amen.